Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Dan Brooks. Dan is a neuroscientist and founder of brooksbaseball.net, a site dedicated to research derived from pitch effects data. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. Well, Dan, let's start at the beginning. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. You know, I have to say I really love competition. I, I like watching, you know, uh, sports. I, 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 um, the honest answer is I could really be watching anything. You know, I can watch women's softball and, and get into the game. I can watch, you know, like a uh, trick shot pool and get into the game. Um, but, uh, you know, as a kid growing up in the Boston area, baseball was always on, the Red Sox were always big, um, you know, and then I went through that period, I don't know, you know, teenager, you know, you sort of, baseball isn't cool anymore, at least I did. And then, you know, sort of fell back in love with it around college and uh, really started to get involved in sabermetrics probably around 2007 or 2008. Well, let me ask you about that, because I think everyone of a certain age sort of grew up with wins in RBI. When did you develop a particular interest in more advanced metrics? Yeah, so um, around 2007 or, you know, maybe a little bit before then, I sort of started reading baseball forums and blogs, just sort of started getting into it, you know, uh, posting random stuff on the Internet, you know, seeing what people thought. And then um, I had a friend who was interested in this new kind of data that was coming out, this picture effects data, and I was interested in it too, and we were just looking at stuff together. And literally, the website started because his computer couldn't parse the XML files. He had an old version of Excel for the Mac. And so I wrote this little script that helped him download PitchFX data. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it just sort of... Uh, ballooned from there, sort of. I mean, there was no, like, concerted effort, like, let's go build a website. I mean, now there is, but, you know, there, there wasn't in the beginning. And, um, you know, so it, it sort of really evolved naturally. It's sort of this continuous growth process. It's not like, uh, you know, um, it's not like I ever sat down and said, okay, now I am a sabermetrician and I shall build websites about baseball statistics. PitchFX has become one of the more important developments in the last, I don't know, 30 years of baseball research. Tell me about PitchFX and tell me why it's important. Um, you know, I think PitchFX is important for a variety of reasons. I think from a statistical point of view, I think it's given us a really good handle on a part of the game that was sort of previously only available to really expert people um, and baseball teams. So, you know, if you wanted to know how well, you know, so-and-so's cutter was doing as opposed to his two-seam fastball, you know, there was a time where if you were a, you know, really good at, at, at just watching scouting pitches, you know, and, and you had the time, you certainly could sit down and have recorded that information. Um, but, you, you know, you couldn't get the kind of information that PitcherVex gets, but you, you could have gotten some kinds of information. PitcherVex has really opened up the um, the availability of that kind of data where we sort of have this analytical or uh, sabermetric way of looking at these things that are a little bit more on the scouting side of baseball where we can say, look at, you know, how a pitcher's putter has evolved over time or how a pitcher's two-seam fastball has started to dominate a little bit more than his four-seam fastball, or how, you know, 
how a guy uses his curve and in what counts he uses it. And I think those were things that were sort of reserved at one point for a sort of scouting analysis that now we can look at from a sabermetric point of view. Let's back up just a moment for listeners who are wondering how we're getting this data. How is PitchFX implemented in ballparks across Major League Baseball? So PitchFX is developed or was developed by a company named Sport Vision. Um, I don't know exactly what year they developed it, although it sort of rolled out in ballparks. Um, I think there was one or two installations in 2006, and then there were more installations in 2007, and then I think it went full in 2008. So we have some partial data from 2007, a little, a tiny, tiny amount of data from 2006, I believe, and then just a ton of data after that. Um, and so basically the way pitch effects works is, is there are cameras that uh, track the flight of the ball from uh, the mound, well, a, a, a large part of the trajectory of the ball, and then uh, try to fit a function that describes the flight of the ball, the trajectory of the ball. And because the ball obeys the laws of physics, which are good because that means we're playing baseball on Earth and everything like that, <laughs> um, you know, uh, because it obeys the laws of physics, we can make certain assumptions about how the ball will behave. And so it turns out that you basically need nine numbers to describe the entire flight of the baseball. And those nine numbers are uh, essentially where the ball started and uh, how fast the ball is moving and how fast uh, the, the ball speed was changing, the acceleration. And so um, basically you get those nine numbers and then everything else is derived from those nine numbers. So pitch effects can give us how much the ball moved due to the spin of the ball. It can give us um, you know, where it's, was at any given point in its trajectory. It can give us the final location, which is used to inform many strike zone maps on many TV broadcasts. It can give us something about the starting location. So PitcherFX actually doesn't give us the actual release point. Um, we only get an estimation of the release point in the X space and the Z space, which are like uh, from the catcher left to right, and from the catcher up and down. But from the catcher to the mound, we'll call that Y space, um, we, we estimate that, or PitchFX does, uh, to be at 50 feet. Um, although on my site, we actually move that back to 55 feet for a slightly more realistic picture of where pitchers are releasing the ball. I'm curious how you feel about how PitchFX was initially presented on broadcast, because I feel like it wasn't done with justice. I feel like we see these strike zones, which are amazing, but too often it's greeted by, rather than this is data from precise cameras, it's, well, the Aflac duck says this pitch is outside. I disagree with the Aflac duck. I wish that baseball across the country, that local broadcasters and national broadcasters took the time to, to explain what the data and information was that the viewers were actually seeing. Well, I think that is true. You know, I, I think that as technology develops and as we start to become, you know, I mean, like we now take high-speed instant replay totally for granted. You know, like you watch a, a, a baseball game and every pitch or, or you watch a football game and every catch is replayed from 47 different angles, you know, in a variety of different HD formats. 
And, you know, if you watch footage from 45 years ago, you know, I mean, you know, if you got a replay, you were lucky. And it was probably grainy and probably from the same camera angle, the initial and only shot was taken. You know, so, I mean, you know, as technology changes and, and begins to be incorporated into the broadcast, I think because it sort of emerges, you know, naturally and over time, people don't really stop to think about like, okay, let's explain the technology to everyone. What's amazing with pitch effects is how quickly we are accumulating data. And you know this better than anyone, but because it went, you know, every team adapted it by 2008, we're at a point where every pitch that Clayton Kershaw is going to throw in his career is going to be monitored by pitch effects. We went from having very little data like this available to the public to all of a sudden having tens and thousands and hundreds of thousands of pitch recorded by cameras. I think that's really amazing. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, actually. I mean, the idea that, uh, you know, Clayton Kershaw is a great example. Clay Buckholz is a great example. John Lester is a great example. You know, these, these are guys who, well, John Lester and Clay Buckholz, just from, from Boston, so <laughs> some amount of bias there. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, these are guys who, in, in some cases, I mean, Kershaw has, has remained, I think, you know, pretty consistent. Um, but, you know, Buckles has undergone these huge sort of transformations in his career in terms of his pitching style. And, you know, we have everything captured, everything about his release, everything about his velocity, everything about the different types of pitches, the different movements on his types of pitches. And we can really go back and do a kind of retrospective that, you know, if you want to do this for Pedro Martinez, either you are watching every start, every inning thrown by Pedro and sitting there with a pencil and you only get a fraction of what pitch effects would have given you anyway. Or, you know, I mean, in some cases, you know, good luck watching a Pedro Martinez start and picking out his pitches every time without watching each one three times. You know, it's just, it's not easy. You know, these are guys who are throwing the ball incredibly hard and, you know, the differences maybe between a two seam and a four seam fastball or a cutter in some cases is just not it's not something that if you're sitting in a game or watching a broadcast, you always will pick up, but Pitch of Hex will always pick it up and it will always be, you know, recorded for you. What are we learning about hitters through Pitch Effects? So I think we're learning a lot about hitters. You know, I think we're learning how they approach sort of the game within a game of the pitcher-batter matchup in the sense that, you know, some batters have particular skills, they're, you know, better or worse at discriminating the strike zone, they're better or worse at hitting in particular areas of the plate, you know, that they have swings that are tailored to doing particular things, and then you have pitchers trying to counteract those things. And so, you know, understanding how the, you know, how pitchers are changing to adapt to hitter styles and how hitters are changing to adapt to pitcher styles is a pretty interesting, you know, sort of game within a game. You know, it's sort of the, the metagame of baseball is sort of understanding how this pitcher-batter relationship stabilizes. And what is pitch effects telling us about park factors, how different parks can influence a pitch? So, some. So it turns out that some of the data that we have on this tells us something about the parks. And it's also some of it tells us about the different cameras. So there are some slight calibration issues in the sense that not all pitch effect systems are the same. Um, for example, if you go look up starts that occurred in Houston, um, they will all have markedly more horizontal movement on the order of a couple inches than a start that happens, I don't know, I'll play Toronto. Um, 
you know, Tampa is the same way. Tampa has a horizontal shift, you know, and, and so sometimes those are things about the camera systems themselves. And that's not so interesting. It's just sort of the camera system. But, you know, sometimes we learn things about like how pitches move in Colorado. And there was a nice article on BP about that um, a couple months ago, you know, like, what does this really do? If, if you're the Rockies and you're looking to sign a pitcher, what, what kind of pitches will be successful there, you know, in this very different environmental conditions. Where is pitch effects currently deficient? So that's a good question. I wouldn't say that pitch effects is deficient really in any way. I would say that technology is going to constantly evolve. You know, so there are other systems for tracking the ball that are starting to incorporate their way into Major League Baseball, like TrackMan. TrackMan is a radar system as opposed to a camera system. It can pick up the precise spin of the ball, whereas pitch effects only gives you the estimate. It can pick up the actual release point of the pitch, whereas pitch effects only gives you an estimate. You know, but these aren't ways in which pitch effects is deficient. It's just ways in which TrackMan has approached the problem from a slightly different angle, and so they get some information that pitch effects doesn't capture. And, you know, I think pitch effects has improved a lot over the last couple of years in terms of, uh, you know, they, they have an automatic algorithm that classifies many of the pitches. Um, it turns out that on our site, we primarily use the classifications uh, done by uh, Pitch Info, which is a company run by Harry Pavlidis. But this automatic algorithm has improved substantially. I mean, uh, it, it, it's virtually night and day from when the software was first released to now. You know, now you get very good classifications. Not perfect, but very good. Um, you know, what is the, and, I'm sorry to interrupt. What is the automatic alg algorithm telling you? Okay, so you get back a whole bunch of parameters about the pitches, and then you have to decide what's that pitch of fastball, what's this pitch of curveball, what's this pitch of changeup, right? Because it's not a human that does those things currently. So there's, there's, a, there's a, um, an automatic algorithm that labels every pitch. Well, that's fascinating. How does the algorithm sort of decipher between a slider and a curveball? The algorithm is actually a neural network, which I have some amount of expertise with, although not very much, um, having, uh, um, you know, programmed some and, you know, worked with them a little bit just because of my, you know, science background. And basically what these things are doing is they're trying to sort of sort out the parameters and the data that best classify the pitch uh, as a core, you know, as, as a particular label. And then the way the algorithm works, to the best of my knowledge, they sort of seed the algorithm with training data about each pitcher and also something about the pitcher's, pitcher's repertoire. So, you know, they'll say, you know, John Lester doesn't throw a slider, he throws a cutter. Or Clay Buckholz throws a changeup and a splitter, but not a forkball. And then based on that training data, and based on what they tell the system, a little bit about what they tell the system, the system then comes up with classifications for every pitch as it comes in online. So when you're watching game day, all of those classifications are done with a computer algorithm. Now, it turns out those classifications are good. Like I said, they're very good, but they're not perfect. And so what we then do is uh, Harry Pavlidis, who runs PitchInfo, uh, goes in and checks all of these classifications, some algorithmically, some manually, I believe, and we get back, you know, really, really, really good classifications and are able to really make good distinctions between pitch type. Well, so we know about pitch effects now. Tell me about your website, brooksbaseball.net, and how people can best use your site. My site, 
really started as a sort of game-by-game website. So um, I would pull data from an individual game. Uh, You could uh, view that data, sort of, you know, look up what John Lackey is doing tonight in Boston or whatever, uh, or in Detroit, um, and, you know, uh, uh, get sort of statistics, graphs, based on that individual performance. Um, And then last year, um, with Harry, uh, we developed a player card system where, you know, we we took all of the data for, uh, you know, a particular starter like Yu Darvish and would compile a whole bunch of statistics about that. And, you know, you could split it a variety of ways. Then maybe a couple weeks ago, um, we changed the organization a little bit and I think we made it a lot more functional, a lot more useful. And, you know, you can now sort by way too many things. Um, you know, I have a directory that caches images for two days. Um, so, you know, every time someone pulls up a page, it just caches that image so that they could copy it and, you know, copy it to their website or copy it to Twitter or whatever without my website generating it over and over and I think I have something like 23,000 images in that directory right now. Uh, and they only get stored for two days, and then they get wiped. So, you know, I mean, you just, you know, there, there are a huge number of, of ways you can look at pitches and pitching. Well, let's get into some specific players. Let's talk about Tim Lincecum. He's an interesting guy. As a few years ago, he was once a dominant pitcher. And the last two years, he's really struggled. What does pitch effects tell us about why? I think... Basically, throughout a pitcher's career, you sort of have this constant evolution of trying to redefine yourself as a pitcher, right? Because um, even if you come into the league throwing 100, in three years, you're probably not going to be throwing 100. I mean, some guys maintain velocity very well, maintain their mechanics very well, you know, don't add or subtract pitches, don't change what they do and succeed. But they're pretty rare, right? Because rarely are you perfect. And once you have a weakness, hitters will start to sit on that weakness, start to try and exploit it. And even if you didn't have a weakness, then just because of time, you become progressively worse, basically. You know, I mean, you can get better as a pitcher. It's it's possible to improve over the course of your career. But those things don't happen just by doing what you were doing before. You know, so rarely do you just get better at doing what you were doing. Often you sort of change who you are, what you are, how you're using your pitches, or make a slight delivery or mechanical change, or learn a new pitch. Or um, it's hard to come up with examples of guys who three years ago were throwing 93 and now are throwing 97, at least in the majors, right? And I think Lincecum is a great example of a guy who came into the league and was really dominant with, you know, a 95, 96-mile-an-hour fastball and, you know, is now throwing 90, 91, right? And that's pretty different if you're a major league hitter. That's, that's a huge difference. Even though it's only five miles an hour, it's a huge difference because his changeup, which um, was once this incredible pitch and, you know, start to lose some of that effectiveness when batters don't have to look for 95 and instead they can look for 90. And, you know, maybe it was the case that he just wasn't able to do it, you know, repeatedly over many, many years, like somebody else who who might experience the same kind of decline in stuff 
but isn't also going to be sorting out all these other mechanical issues. Although, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's a really interesting contrast between a guy like Lincecum and a guy like Felix Hernandez, for example, who has also experienced a pretty substantial decline in, I think, what you would say is like overall stuff, you know, like he's not throwing 97 anymore, but he's still an incredibly effective pitcher. Yeah, and it's interesting about Lincecum because Lincecum, when he came in, was throwing 95, 96, and his sinker was also 95, 96. His four seam was 95, 96, and that's steadily gone down to about 90, 91. His sinker has also dropped to 90 and 91, so he's really seen two pitches drop in velocity while his changeup has stayed the same at 84. It also doesn't seem like he's throwing his slider quite as much, and he's even mentioned that when he throws his slider, it hurts his arm, and you often have to wonder with pitchers how much an injury is causing them to adjust their mechanics, which could be causing their velocity or other things to change. Yeah, I think actually that maybe last season, I think he was being interviewed, and he said something like, you know, I'm really trying to work my slider out of my repertoire. You know, like, I I don't want to throw this pitch anymore. They're telling me not to do this. And lo and behold, over the course of the season, more and more and more sliders as, you know, he's like, well, you know, I don't know what's not working. Let me let me get back to my old self. I will say that if you look at Tim Lincecum's pitches, so w- one thing that's really interesting to me, if you look at different pitchers, for example, if you look at a guy like CC Sabathia, I could show you a plot of CC Sabathia's pitches. And it plotted, say, speed by horizontal movement. So speed on the y-axis, horizontal movement on the x-axis. And you can pull this up on my site. You can go to Sabathia and then click scatter charts and, and pull that plot up. And it's really obvious. Like, there are really nice, well-defined, obvious pitch clusters where it's like, okay, you know, this is just easy, right? I mean, anybody could classify these. And then you look at a guy like Tim Lincecum. And it's like big mess. All the pitches are sort of blurred together, and it's sort of difficult to see where one thing starts and another thing ends. This was especially true earlier. And so he was really coming at hitters with like a variety of stuff that all looked very similar. And it was even hard to tell apart for cameras. So you can imagine how hard it was to tell apart for hitters. But, you know, he had success with that, whereas CC Sebastia had success with well defined clusters of pitches. So I don't know that one thing is better than another. I just know it's sort of an interesting difference about once it comes that she's sort of had this, you know, sort of like, wow, what is all this slop kind of pitch data, even though his performance was stellar. And so it's just always sort of an interesting contrast. Let's talk about another guy who's been up and down over the course of his career. He's also in your backyard. Let's talk a bit about John Lester. Why was he great at one point or to appear to be great? And why has he struggled the last couple seasons? John Lester seems to be a guy who, especially in, in, in terms of the, the usage of his pitches, has changed quite a bit from his early starts to his later starts. So earlier in his career, he was throwing a lot more sinkers or two-seam fastballs or one-seam fastballs. I can't remember what, he, you know, what grit he was actually using, but we'll, we'll just call it a sinker as compared to his four-seam fastball, which is you know, much straighter pitch. And, uh, you know, he, he's gradually increased the use of that forcing fastball. He's also really started to rely much more heavily on the cutter than he really ever did in the past. And it's hard to say whether or not 
the cutter was correlated with his increase in success, although, you know, certainly 2010 and 2011 when he started throwing it more were better seasons for him. But then, you know, you, you look recently and it seems like a couple games ago, his cutter was three or four miles an hour off what it normally is. Um, and I'm not suggesting that anything dramatically changed, but just maybe he was having a little bit of difficulty finding a release point or finding uh, finding control there. And maybe his mechanics were drifting out. And, you know, like may- maybe it was just sort of a rough patch for him where he wasn't just commanding that pitch as well. And it seems as though he's undergone a lot of change in terms of how he's approached hitters, just in terms of his overall pitch selection. Yeah, and not throwing the sinker as much. It's really really stark. I mean, he had months in 2008 where he threw it 30% of the time, 20% was regular. This season, he's been, in April, he was at 6.7%, in May, he was at 68 and in June, he was at 86 He's dramatically cut the amount of time he's throwing the sinker at such a degree that, I, again, I wonder if it's, it's causing him some sort of injury or uncomfort when he's throwing it. Yeah, you know, the funny thing about the sinker is, I mean, for most guys, from what I understand, this is not a pitch that produces that much more strain. You know, so like a slider, you know, when you're really trying to spin the ball, you know, I can see that putting more stress on your arm. It's hard to imagine that a two-seam fastball is that much more stressful than a four-seam fastball. It may be, I don't know. But, you know, Lester is one of those guys who, you know, over the course of his career has really backed away from that pitch, you know, in a a really interesting way. I mean, at one point in 2008, again, you know, he seemed like a guy who was going to be sort of like your prototypical mix of fastball sinker. And now he hardly ever throws it. So certainly that has changed. Tell me about Hugh Darvish and what Pitch Effects is telling us about him. So you, Darvish, I think is, um, it's sort of interesting. Again, I apologize for my persistent Red Sox bias. Um, but, you know, we signed Dice K, and it, it's sort of a bad, we were sort of sold, and by we, I mean, you know, fans, when we sort of heard about this sort of mystical guy who threw 95 and threw eight different pitches and would mix them all in and do crazy things and, you know, would be sort of fearless and, and throw his slider, you know, in any count and, you know, through two different types of changeup and all this stuff. And then, then you watch him pitch and you're like, well, that, that's, that's not that guy. Uh, that, that's sort of disappointing. But Darvish has sort of been everything that that was advertised to be. So Darvish throws the ball really hard, but also seems to be this like savant in terms of, you know, spinning the ball. Like he, he just has this amazing ability to throw so many different things and throw them so well. Um, you know, he not only has this incredible um, slider, which which is actually, if you look, um, I don't know that there's another guy like this. I'm, I'm sure we can find one. But his slider is his most used pitch this year, um, which is just crazy. Um, but it's also because, you know, he has three different fastball variants. You know, so... He's, he's a really interesting pitcher to watch pitch and also a really interesting pitcher to go back and look at the data. Yeah, he's really interesting. Your site lists him with eight pitches, a four-seamer, a sinker, a changeup, a slider, a curve, a cutter, a split, and a slow curve. It's rare that a pitcher would throw that many pitches. I'm curious about the algorithm. How accurate is the algorithm with identifying his pitch types? So again, so this is Harry. So Harry can go in and, and manually look at every pitch that Darvish throws and actually added the slow curve at some point last season where he said, you know, it's really interesting because 
uh, you know, we, we knew that Darvish threw this pitch, right? It's sort of this, um, you, you watch it. Actually, if you tab over, it, it's pretty interesting. If you tab over to the tabular data and then to the pitch usage, you can see when he's throwing the, the pitch. And it turns out that if you look at left-handed hitters and you look at the first pitch, Darvish throws the slow curve 15% of the time. So it's like you climb into the batter's box against you, Darvish. You know, you're all geared up to see any one of a dozen different things. Who knows where he's going to locate it? You know, he's throwing 95 or whatever. And then he gets up there and he's like, blink, you know, and he sort of drops this like, ding, you know, slow curve, you know, how does that fool you? And it's really interesting to look at what batters do with it. So if you look at pitch outcomes and you turn it on all uh, zero balls, zero strikes, and left-handed hitters, you know, he's done this 113 times uh, so far, where he's just sort of got up there and just floated this little slow curve over the plate. And batters don't swing. They swing 7% of the time, as opposed to when he throws his cutter first pitch and they swing... 36% of the time. So basically he's like, I get a free pitch. Let's see what happens. And it's a really interesting strategy, right? Because, you know, it's like, why don't more pitchers do this? All of them could throw 60, right? All of them can throw a curveball or many of them can throw a curveball. You know, why don't more pitchers just get up there and they're like, haha, fooled you. Here's the platoon split that's, you know, going to be unfavorable to me. Let me get a free pitch in. And, and that's sort of what, what Darvish does. And so, this, this was an interesting change that Harry made that allowed us to pull out those slow curves and really get a better idea of where Darvish was using them. You mentioned Daisuke earlier, and I was living in Boston when the Red Sox signed him, and it was one of those things where we heard a lot about the gyro ball, that Daisuke threw this pitch that has never been seen and it's going to change the game forever. Is there any evidence, has pitch effects picked up any evidence that any such thing as the gyro ball actually exists? That's a great question. Dice K did throw at some point a couple different change-up split kind of variants, you know, where it'd be like, huh, he doesn't usually do that. But what the gyro ball was supposed to be was this pitch that sort of spun like a football, right? It was supposed to be this pitch that sort of spun like uh, on its side. And um, we we have a name for that pitch already. It's called the slider, and it's used by like half the guys in baseball. So you know, I don't I don't know that there's ever been any good evidence that that um, the driver ball was thrown. Let's talk about a guy whose career has really been up and down. He's been great at times. He's been poor at times. He's been in the middle. Clay Buckholtz, another guy in your backyard. Tell me what some of the things that PitchFX tells us about him. Well, so I think uh, Buckholtz is another one of those guys where if you look at sort of his career trajectory, um, he started out stellar, incredible, um, right through a no-hitter and like a second star, I think, um, you know, and was described, if you go back to like prospect reports on him, as having this like incredible change-up. I mean, and it's true, right? He has, and it's actually sort of a weird change-up if you look in the data. So most change-ups, if you look at where they lie in terms of horizontal movement in compa- as compared to a pitcher's fastball, um, four-seam fastball usually, although also for a two-seam fastball sometimes, they'll sort of be off to the arm side. So um, if, if you're looking at where a, um, a guy is going to locate the pitch and, and also how the pitch moves, change-ups tend to be thrown 
um, in platoon matchups, right? So you, you tend to see more changeups thrown by a right-handed hitter or by a right-handed pitcher against left-handed hitters. Um, and the pitch sort of tends to fade away from them, right? So like fade out of the batter's box, not into their wheelhouse, but away. Buckholz is a little bit weird because even though the pitch does have a slight amount of fade, it actually fades quite a bit less than his fastball. So he has sort of a strange changeup in the sense that it, it's not really like anybody else. And so he came into the, the league doing that, and he still does that. He still has a fantastic changeup. I think at one point it was like um, 40% whiffs for swinging this, this year, which is really high. Um, if you pull up Buckholz's data, Buckholz really early on in his career, and I, I think the Sox sort of forced this on him, although I don't know the whole story, really early on in his career sort of went through this evolution where they said, okay, you know, these sorts of things aren't working and we want you to tinker with your delivery a bit. And it looks like rather than a sort of step function where it was like clay buckles, clay buckles, clay buckles, now you're a different clay buckles. It looks like a gradual, uh, you know, emergence of this sort of new pitcher in the sense that he went from, from, from throwing this pitch that everybody agreed was a slider and was sort of fringy to this cutter, and it became a really dominant part of his repertoire. And, you know, it started out, if you look at 2010, as being, you know, X speed, and it sort of slowly grew over the course of the season, and it sort of stayed around that speed. And so, you know, very early on, he went through one of these reinvention processes, which, you know, I think is pretty rare, you know, especially for a guy who everybody agreed had really dominant stuff. In 2008-2009, Buckholz had never thrown the cutter, at least not according to the data. And then all of a sudden, in 2010, it was at times 20 25%, 19% of the time he was throwing it. And he's really maintained at least a 20% pace since. But if you look at the velocity chart, so you look at his month-by-month velocity, or even sort it game-by-game, you can look at the slider sort of progressively grow into what was later reclassified as the cutter. And you can actually see the cutter progressively grow in speed. You know, so this isn't like Buckholz gaining velocity over the course of the season. This is like him doing something different with a pitch that he was sort of learning and experimenting with. And it's just a really interesting, like, it's, it's not like he disappeared and came back with a cutter. Um, although that's sort of what happens if you look at the classifications because, you know, we decided that this was no longer a slider and it's a cutter now, but, you know, went through this really interesting progressive evolution. Um, And I I think those kinds of progressive evolutions are are pretty interesting to think about from a, um, from, from a, you know, a coach's or player's perspective, you know, there are, there are cases where it's like, you know, is his coach really telling him that every day he should, drift a little bit on the third base side of the rubber. Like, that would be a good idea if he would move over just a little bit every day. You know, no, probably not. But if you look at, you know, there, there are pitchers who just progressively drift every day and slowly drift, and by the end of the season, it's six inches or, uh, you know, seven inches of, of movement that, you know, has happened. And it's like, you know, how do these things go unnoticed? Like, there are you know, not only are there 40,000 people watching and cameras, but there are people who watch him every day and say, you're doing the right thing or you're doing the wrong thing. And yet somebody can drift half a foot, you know? 
Dan, there is only one knuckleballer left in the majors. That's R.A. Dickey. What have we been able to learn about the knuckleball through pitch effects? So the, the knuckleball is really interesting, right? Because the knuckleball sort of violates everything that you should know about pitching in the sense that for everybody else, the name of the game is throw the ball hard and spin the ball hard, right? Because if you throw the ball hard, it's harder to hit. If you spin the ball hard, it gets more movement. And you have guys like Dickey and Wakefield who do exactly the opposite. Um, you know, not that everybody could throw a knuckleball, but we could probably go recruit 20 people off the street. And one of them might be able to throw 60 miles an hour or 66 miles an hour or whatever. Um, you know, and there you go. Now, now you've found a guy who throws as hard as Tim Wakefield. Now, obviously, it's, it's not that easy to throw a knuckleball. But, you know, it, it sort of violates our expectations about what an athlete should be doing when we get this guy who does something completely different from the norm. And I think the knuckleball is just a fantastic example of the variability in selection process in the sense that it's, I feel like if every pitcher threw the knuckleball, you know, if, if everyone did it, a, well, A, it wouldn't be that special, but I feel like baseball would be a changed game in the sense that guys would learn much more about how it was going to move and what kinds of knuckleballs to swing at and, you know, what you were going to do in, in such and such a situation. Um, but I'm surprised more guys don't throw it. It's a pitch that's proven to be effective throughout in the last 50 years of the game. There's been a handful of pitchers that have been really effective with it, and it doesn't put as much strain on your arm. I think the team should almost encourage it. Well, you know, it's, I think it's one of those things where the success rate is so low in the sense that it's really hard to get the kind of movement and have the kind of control and be able to do this in a repeatable way to, to, to throw the pitch. And it's also something extremely different from what almost every pitcher does growing up, right? So, like, I, I'm not a scout, but I guess it's pretty rare that you show up at a high school and they're like, hey, man, you should really check out our best player. He's a knuckleballer. You know, also, also, you know, also he plays last and, and, you know, hits 30 bombs a year or whatever, you know, like, like there, there are plenty, I feel like, you know, pitchers, you guys, you go see, they throw 93, 94, not, not there, there are plenty of them in high school, but you know, there, there are guys who throw 93, 94, you know, they throw a, a, a four seam fastball and a slider, some, you know, some fringy slider at that point in their life. And, uh, you know, um, they also play left and, you know, who knows what that person will become. Um, but I feel like it's pretty rare for that guy to also be a knuckleballer. You know, that, that's pretty weird. And most guys who throw the knuckleball end up being these sort of like, you know, like, well, nothing else is working. I might as well try this crap, you know? <laughs> and I mean, I think that's the case with Wakefield, right? It was the case with Dickey, right? Um, and, you know, there have been other guys. I actually saw a game uh, in Pawtucket maybe a week ago. I saw a right pitch, and I was sitting there with a scout, um, and we, we were talking the whole time. And uh, so Wright recorded, like, 20 swings and misses or something on his knuckleball he was counting. And that's crazy. Like, 20 swings and misses is, is ridiculously dominant. But, you know, did, did the guy I was sitting with have any confidence that Wright could go out and throw another game with twenty swings and misses. No, you know it, it, there was nothing. 
there was nothing special about what he was doing, except he was just doing what he always does, you know? There was no, like, like, ooh, you know, he's finally figured it out kind of moment. And that's why I think teams and scouts and, and coaches don't encourage it, is because it's not as predictable as other pitches. The lack of predictability, while sometimes it's spectacular, sometimes you see knuckleballs go 500 feet, and I think that lack of predictability is why it's not thrown more. Yeah, I mean, it, I think the lack of predictability is its greatest asset and its greatest failure, right? In the sense that um, I think a lot of what hitting is, and I think a lot of what being a successful hitter is, is being able to understand something about the, I mean, obviously it's about bat speed and about, you know, uh, control and swing and everything like that. But I think it's also about, you know, sort of being able to get in the pitcher's head and understand what is this guy going to throw me and where is he going to locate and how has he pitched me in the past and, you know, um, you know, what did I do with the last pitch? Is that more likely or less likely to throw a, a fastball or whatever? And, you know, a guy like Wakefield or a guy like Dickey, you get up there and it's like, all right, well, I'm going to see the knuckleball. And he has no idea where it's going, and I have no idea where it's going. Nobody has any idea where it's going. So he's just going to throw it. And if I sort of like the way it looks based on the initial small amount of the trajectory, I'm just going to swing. And if not, I'm not going to swing. And, you know, we hear all these kind of invented strategies, like if it's high, let it fly or whatever. And you know what? I, I, I don't know that there's any good way to hit a knuckleball or, or catch a knuckleball, right? Um, but, you know, it's sort of this really interesting, like, there's no metagame. Like, there's no, maybe he's going to come inside. Maybe he's going to go outside. Maybe he's going to throw down. Maybe it's going to, you know, maybe he's going to spin a pitch, you know, right over the heart of the plate and try and catch me looking. I don't know. What's he going to do? No. You know, none of that. Throw all that out the window. Vicky, he's going to get up there. He's going to float out a knuckleball. You're going to deal with it. <laughs> you know, and, and it's just, it's very weird compared to everything else. Dan, moving off of player profiles, you are also the organizer of the Sabre Seminar. Tell me about the event and the cause it benefits, the Jemmy Fund. So the Sabre Seminar is happening August 17th and 18th in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, we are going to have a great lineup of uh, speakers ranging from uh, former pitcher Brian Bannister to baseball physicist Alan Nathan to many great uh, sports doctors and, and medical experts and also authors and, and people from your favorite websites like Baseball Perspectives. Uh, ben Lindbergh will be there and Fangraphs, uh, Dave Cameron and Bill Petty. And we're all going to get together and learn a lot about baseball and, and have a great time and, and donate to a great cause. That causes the Jimmy Fund. One of the nice things about the event is that 100% of the proceeds of the event go directly to the cause. You're doing a great thing. It's a great event for people around Boston or people want to make a trip. That's August 17th and 18th. It's right in the heart of Boston at Boston University. People can log on to saberseminar.com to find out more information. You've been listening to Dan Brooks. Dan is a neuroscientist and founder of brooksbaseball.net. To purchase tickets or find out more information about Saber Seminar, visit saberseminar.com. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Yeah, thanks so much. It was great.